You're listening to From Beyond, the monthly film podcast where we discuss Lovecraftian and Lovecraft-adjacent movies, old and new, through the lens of weird fiction and cosmic horror. My name is Mike Contos, and your co-host is Keith Warholic. Today we are discussing the 1991 film, The Resurrected, directed by Dan O'Bannon. The movie is based on the H.P. Lovecraft novella, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Set in his hometown of Providence, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward is H.P. Lovecraft's longest story. It was written in 1927, but was not published until the 1940s, years after Lovecraft's death. Lovecraft was not particularly fond of the story, but many critics and fans consider it one of his finest works. As always, we recommend you check out the movies and stories we discuss before listening. Most of H.P. Lovecraft's work is public domain, and the case of Charles Dexter Ward can be read for free at hplovecraft.com, along with many of his other works. Before we dive into our discussion of The Resurrected, we're excited to introduce our new listener feedback section. So let's begin our journey into vistas from beyond. Surprisingly, I guess, after our first episode, we got quite a bit of feedback in the form of emails, which was awesome. Um, It was great to hear people responding to the first episode and saying that they really enjoyed it. Yeah, keep it coming. You know, eventually we want to do some bonus episodes uh, for this podcast. We would love to do just like a a listener discussion episode where, um, you know, if there's any movies or games or books that that are Lovecraftian and you'd like to hear what we think of them we'd love to discuss that if you think you appreciate something we have to say or you disagree with it it would be great to hear from you and then maybe in the future we can do like a a listener feedback episode but anyway this month friend of the pod brendan t has written us an email uh with two i guess questions to discuss uh the first one is have either of you seen necronomicon 1993 i am curious about your thoughts on it i've been trying to see it for a while now but i haven't i believe arrow video or scream factory got the rights to release it so i hope to track it down soon Uh, I have seen Necronomicon. I have no idea how to get a physical copy of it, aside from maybe like a bootleg stand at a con or something. I downloaded a torrent of it or watched it in like 240p on YouTube. Last time I looked, I could not find any DVD or Blu-ray release of it. Um, we definitely want to cover it on the podcast. It's a cool anthology movie that that does a quick adaptation of Rats in the Walls, Cool Air, and Whisperer in the Darkness. I have not seen Necronomicon, but if it adapts everything you just listed, I need to, because I like all those stories a lot. The second question is, I find Lovecraft's writing to be rooted in nihilism, and that is what makes his storytelling so frightening which is understandable when you consider how small we are in the universe. What is it about cosmic nihilism that resonates with you guys so well, and why does it work for so many people? I mean, even before I had ever read a Lovecraft story, there were all sorts of times in my life where you learn about the vastness of the universe, and it does cause existential dread. It's, it makes you feel tiny. I've loved these old weird stories and pulp fiction and horror from... 
I mean, the first time I read something like one of Robert E. Howard's Conan stories, and uh, I, I mean, I read some Lovecraft pretty shortly after that. I, I'm just really drawn to stories like this that have had such a lasting effect on some of my favorite genres like horror and fantasy and science fiction, of course. I think the broad appeal of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's very pessimistic view is basically just that it's not science fiction, it's reality. Like it is actually the universe that we live in. It's likely that human beings uh, really evolved to want to have a sense of purpose, potentially even evolved to be religious and have religious beliefs. You know, that there is like a God out there that created a universe that functions in an orderly manner, that there's a purpose for all of our lives and that everything is gonna turn out okay. And H.P. Lovecraft was like alive at a time when uh, science was really starting to flourish and it was becoming increasingly obvious, you know, through things like the theory of evolution and uh, the growing revelations about the vastness of the universe that maybe there wasn't a plan for everything and that the universe didn't care. And I think that's kind of the default position for most people now. Most people, whether they realize it or not, are, are materialists and they are naturalists. They believe that the natural world is all that there is. And the logical conclusion of that belief is pretty scary, I think. Like the idea that there is nobody looking out for you, like things just happen at random in the universe. You could die in a car accident tomorrow. There's no plan for your life. There's, you know, an asteroid could hit the earth and wipe out everything on it. Like that's just something that could happen. There's no plan for the earth. And I think that stuff is terrifying. Like, and HP uh, Lovecraft, you know, nothing he's, he's writing is fant is, is fantasy. It's not fantastical. It's all logically possible. His fiction is just illustrating something that I think we all think about and are scared about, which is existential risk. And the fact that, uh, the universe does not care about our existence. People believed that the universe was created for and revolved around humans on Earth up until quite recently in the grand scheme of things, especially in Lovecraft's life. Like, this was all changing around him as he was alive. Um, I mean, I, I grew up religious and kind of went through a realization that maybe there's not a greater meaning to my own life not super long before I found his fiction. I think that's that's probably part of why it resonates with me. And lastly, I think just, I mean, you can find the DNA of Lovecraft in so many stories that were written after his time. But to me, I don't think, I don't know that many of the things written later on have surpassed his work, at least not for me, yeah. Lovecraft reminds me of uh, of Tolkien in a way where, you know, these are both authors that are emulated constantly in writing and in filmmaking. And I feel like nobody really seems to get what it is about their writing that at least appeals to me personally. And with Lovecraft, it seems like people get fixated on the on the tentacles and the monsters and sort of, I guess, the visually recognizable aspects of his stories. But that to me is not what makes something Lovecraftian. What makes something Lovecraftian is the sense of uh, of the indifference of the universe, the revelation that we don't have a special place in it. We talked about it on the last episode, but True Detective is, a, is an example of a show that absolutely nails the Lovecraftian worldview in a way that a lot of stories that are inspired by Lovecraft and just have like a tentacly space monster at the end 
really don't. I think we're going to have to cover True Detective at some point on the podcast because that first season is, there's a lot to get into. Born in 1662, Joseph Kerwin was a merchant, a slaver, and, if rumor was to be believed, a sorcerer. He fled from Salem during the witch panic due to suspicions aroused by his alchemical experiments and the fact that people in Salem had begun to notice that Kerwin was not growing older. Kerwin purchased a farm outside Providence and began to conduct experiments once more. Rumors began to spread about strange happenings on his property. Large quantities of meat were delivered to the farm for unknown purposes, and people who went there were sometimes never heard from again. After a great storm, the riverbank running through Kerwin's farm eroded, revealing both human and animal bones. Soon after, there were reports of strange, morbid things floating down the river from Kerwin's farm some of which seemed to cry out despite their impossibly decayed states. Believing that dark experiments were being conducted in a network of tunnels that existed beneath Kerwin's farm, a man named Ezra Whedon decided to take matters into his own hands and recruited the men of Providence to raid Kerwin's farm. That night, Ezra and his men put Kerwin's farm to the sword, leaving nothing alive. Red smoke and a terrible stench rose as the farm burned, and a demoniac intonation was heard on the wind. The men involved in the attack swore an oath of secrecy, never to disclose what they had seen under the farm that night, and the name of Joseph Kerwin faded from memory in Providence. 131 years later, Charles Dexter Ward is born to a wealthy family in Providence. Spending much of his youth in pursuit of his antiquarian interests, Charles seems a promising young man before he discovers his long-dead relative, Joseph Kerwin. Charles visits the site of Kerwin's old home, finds a painting of Kerwin, and convinces his father to purchase it. The face in the painting looks exactly like Charles, and he finds Kerwin's old diary behind it. As Charles seeks out information about Kerwin, he learns of various alchemists similar to Kerwin, who Kerwin had corresponded with over the years. As Charles's interests shift toward mysticism and the occult, he travels to Europe to learn more about these strange topics, meeting with many old alchemists and magicians. Upon his return, Charles becomes more and more like Kerwin in his pursuit of dark, forgotten knowledge. He becomes obsessed with completing Kerwin's research, and his demeanor begins to change rapidly. Charles's parents become concerned as frightful chants and strange lights begin to emanate from Charles' study in the night. When his parents can tolerate no more, Charles moves out to continue conducting his experiments on his newly purchased property, the site of Kerwin's old farm. Concerned for his son's well-being, Charles Dexter Ward's father enlists the help of the Ward's family doctor, Dr. Willett. They confront Charles only to discover that his voice, behavior, and writing has become that of a completely different person. The authorities conclude that Charles Dexter Ward has gone mad and he is committed to a mental asylum. Dr. Willett decides to investigate Charles's farm. Finding a secret entrance to a system of tunnels beneath, he discovers evidence of necromancy. 
half-formed human monstrosities living in pits and jars which hold the remains of great thinkers and powerful men from history. Dr. Willett suddenly grasps the terrible truth. Charles Dexter Ward is no longer himself. He has been replaced by the resurrected Joseph Kerwin, who has been continuing his old work of raising the dead. Without thinking, Dr. Willett reads an incantation aloud and unwittingly resurrects a mysterious figure from one of Kerwin's jars of remains. Everything goes black. When Dr. Willett wakes up, he is alone, but the mysterious figure has left him instructions for how to destroy Kerwin. Willett goes to the asylum and returns Kerwin to dust, using the instructions he was given. Dr. Willett returns home and pens a letter to Charles Dexter Ward's father, letting him know that he will never see his son again. Today we are going to be talking about one of my favorite Lovecraft adaptations, The Resurrected, from 1991, directed by Dan O'Bannon. And it is based on the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Yeah, so my first impressions of this movie, um, I had heard about it for ages. I knew that it went by several different titles. It's been released under the names Shatterbrain, The Ancestor, and The Resurrected. Mostly it's known by The Resurrected now. Um, Yeah, for a while it was really hard to find. Um, I think I watched like a, a really a VHS rip torrent of it originally. Uh, now you can actually buy it on Blu-ray uh, and it's a pretty sweet package. It's uh, It's got some really cool behind the scenes stuff with Dan O'Bannon, the director, and um, uh, it has some behind the scenes for the special effects. And it also has an, uh, a really good interview about the story with S.T. Joshi, who is probably the foremost Lovecraft weird fiction scholar in the world. I honestly expected this movie to be really bad and low quality because nobody really seems to have seen it and it was hard to find for a long time and I was really shocked when I found it and I actually watched it. You know, how good the special effects were. The special effects are really reminiscent of movies like The Thing. The soundtrack is amazing. The acting is really good. The acting is not by like unknowns. Like there's some pretty well-known actors in the movie. And yeah, all in all, it probably is the best Lovecraft adaptation for my money. I do remember reading a few different things of people saying like this is the most faithful adaptation, a movie that kind of captures the essence of the story better than almost any other adaptations out there. And I remember kind of having similar struggles of finding finding a way to watch this movie because it was kind of it was just like gone from the face of the planet for a while it felt like and uh yeah i was not disappointed it does does feel like it does capture the essence of the story for the most part though there are a few things missing that are a little bit disappointing for me i guess but all in all it's uh does a good job i always thought that this was one of the more filmable lovecraft stories A, a lot of lovecraft stories are very heavy on atmosphere and sort of light on plot. This really has like a uh, more of a traditional plot. It's a, it's it's a plot heavy story. It has like a lot of twists and turns. It has some very memorable set pieces. It kind of has like a, a mystery that's like instantly intriguing, which is what happened to this guy Charles Dexter Ward. What made his personality change? 
within this the story itself there is action scenes notably the the raid on joseph Kerwin's farm and um there's some good monsters in it one of the scariest scenes that hp lovecraft ever wrote in my opinion is in this story and it's all very cinematic like when you read it you can really imagine sort of what a movie rendition of this would be like yeah i mean this is the only novel that hp lovecraft wrote as far as i know it's uh like mountains of madness is probably his other longest thing and that's considered a novella so okay so the case of charles dexter ward is the longest hp lovecraft story and it comes in at a word count of fifty-one thousand. The next longest is the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. That one comes in at forty-two thousand, and At the Mountains of Madness comes in at forty thousand. And those are the longest by a mile. After that, sitting around twenty thousand is like Shadow over Innsmouth, Whisper in the Darkness, Shadow Out of Time. Yeah, I mean, in books that I have, it goes from like thirty page being a lengthy story to a hundred and thirty page novel. So it's it's a huge leap. It does feel more like it. Has has the structure of a traditional novel than than some of his other stuff does. The movie does leave out some of the really interesting lore from the novel. It's it's a little weird because the the movie actually gets rid of the mythos part of this novel, for the most part. The novel has all sorts of mentions of Yog Sothoth. Yeah, this this story apparently is the first mention ever of Yog Sothoth um, in H.P. Lovecraft's writing. Another aspect of this story that I um, that I think makes it a little more filmable is uh, usually H.P. Lovecraft does not write very character-heavy stories. Like the uh, the characters are underdeveloped. In this story, the character of Charles Dexter Ward is actually pretty well developed for a Lovecraft character. Some people have pointed out that Charles Dexter Ward is kind of an autobiographical character. Um, he seems to resemble Lovecraft in his interests. He's very bookish and nerdy. He loves New England architecture and history. The story describes him as an antiquarian. This is almost like a semi-autobiographical daydream where Lovecraft is imagining himself getting in over his head and discovering some kind of ancient evil, which I thought was cool. Well, one interesting thing that I, I found while just kind of reading about this this novel in general, it was never published in his lifetime, and apparently he kind of talked about it being not really something he loved that much. Like, it, it wasn't really a piece he was super proud of, which is strange to me. Like, Yeah, and uh, it was never published within his lifetime. It was published in an abridged form in Weird Tales, I believe. And then uh, later on, it was published in full uh, in the, like the 1940s. Yeah, it's kind of a dumb thought that I had, but I, I kind of wish you could go back in time and show him the movie of this story that he claimed to not really be too proud of. Because I think it'd, it'd be cool for him to know that one of these works of his that was never published in his lifetime at least went on to be appreciated and turned into something else. I think that all the time. You know, I I wonder what J.R.R. Tolkien would have thought of seeing the... Uh, the Peter Jackson film adaptations of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And honestly, right. I think he would have hated it. <laughs> but, right. Or, or, or maybe what George Lucas would have thought of episodes seven through nine. Uh, I, <laughs> the term, the term white slavers comes to mind. I don't know why. Um, but you know, I think HP Lovecraft, he was a big fan of like 
pulpy adventure stories. Honestly, I bet he would have loved to see like the cheesy midnight movie uh, type Lovecraft films that were coming out in the 80s and the late 70s, early 90s. I think I think he would have got a real uh, real kick out of them, honestly. I mean, yeah, I don't know if you could be writing for magazines like Weird Tales and not be a fan of the 80s horror movies. Like, that's... That's kind of a, a 50 years down the pipeline evolution of that magazine. So this movie is directed by Dan O'Bannon, who has quite a resume. He worked on Star Wars. Yeah, well, he, he, was on, he did special effects on Star Wars. Yeah, he actually worked on the computer animation, which was some of the first computer animation ever in a movie. And I believe that is the, the targeting computer sequence at the end of the original Star Wars. Dan O'Bannon also probably most famously wrote the script for Alien, uh, which is, of course, a very Lovecraftian movie. Um, he also wrote the story for Alien vs. Predator, which is another movie we're going to talk about on this podcast. The lists I were looking at, he's he's credited as story. He's not the, he's not the sole writer of it, but he's one of, I think, three people who wrote that movie. I get the feeling that the fact that Alien vs. Predator is, is basically the Mountains of Madness, may have been because of Dan O'Bannon. Yeah. Another interesting thing, I guess he wrote two of the stories from the original Heavy Metal movie, which is another movie I really love. He uh, he actually also co-wrote the script on a batshit crazy movie called Life Force. For any of our listeners who have not seen the movie Life Force, you have to watch this movie. It is the craziest movie that you have never seen. Uh, it's based on a book called Space Vampires. I, I don't know if I would say that it's good. It's not good. <laughs> it's honest. It has some amazing visuals. If you want to watch a crazy science fiction movie with a lot of space vampires, some cool special effects, and a woman who is naked for almost the entire time exploding people with her mind, then Life Force is for you. Yeah, Life Force is a weird one because I remember seeing the opening of that movie. There's like 10 or 15 minutes of it that are just incredible. Yeah. Uh, you get into it and you're like, all right, I'm in for one of the best movies no one has ever told me about. But holy shit, does that movie just turn into schlock in no time at all. Yeah, anyway, Dan O'Bannon is responsible for a lot of cool, pulpy stuff. A lot of stuff in pop culture that has a, a heavy Lovecraftian influence. So it's not really surprising to me that this is one of the best Lovecraft films. I think he's a great popularizer of kind of cosmic horror and weird fiction ideas. Yeah, I mean, most everything by him that I've seen is uh, is definitely got some Lovecraft in it, or some the influence or DNA of Lovecraft in it. So I wanted to talk about the soundtrack in this movie. The soundtrack was composed by Richard Brand, who also did other Lovecraftian films of approximately the same era. So he did the soundtrack for Reanimator. He did a soundtrack for From Beyond, which actually won an award for Best Original Soundtrack. He also did the soundtrack for Castle Freak, which is based on the H.P. Lovecraft story, The Outsider. Uh, most interestingly, when I was researching him for this episode, I found out that Richard Band actually wrote the soundtrack for the legendary isometric game Planescape Torment. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've been playing through Planescape Torment. I got it off goodoldgames.com. And uh, I've really been appreciating the soundtrack. I thought it adds 
a lot of atmosphere. I noticed it was like really good for a game. Um, and I thought it was cool. They got a film composer to do it. Yeah, that's neat. I thought that the 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 soundtrack uh, for this movie and his other Lovecraft films add a lot to the atmosphere. They're really string heavy soundtracks. The passages are really lengthy. They're very ominous, reminiscent to me of Howard Shore's work on David Cronenberg films like The Fly. And I think it's a huge part of the atmosphere, the Lovecraftian atmosphere in The Resurrected. Uh, it definitely makes some scenes because if you watch uh, if you watch some of those deleted scenes where there's not music, it's amazing how bad this thing could have felt sometimes without this without the score that it has. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, there is the most awkward sex scene I have ever seen in my life. Boy, am I glad it's not in the movie. And yeah, the fact that it's music-free just adds to how bad it is. So. <laughs> Yeah, I think this uh, the soundtrack really elevates the material. I guess we should uh, probably move on to characters. All right, so in The Resurrected, Charles Dexter Ward and Joseph Kerwin are both played by Chris Sarandon, probably best known for playing Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride. He also played the vampire in Fright Night, which is another great horror movie from the 80s. I didn't realize that. I thought he kind of carried the movie. His performance carried the movie for me. I thought he gave a really good performance as uh, both Charles Dexter Ward and Joseph Kerwin, and he did a really good job at uh, distinguishing these characters from each other. In the story, of course, Charles Dexter Ward goes from being a normal New England uh, young man into someone who is speaking in very anachronistic ways um, because, of course, he's being possessed or he's been replaced by his look-alike ancestor, Joseph Kerwin. And uh, I thought Chris Sarandon did a really good job of distinguishing these characters and really making uh, Joseph Kerwin feel very arcane. Uh, One thing that made me laugh in this movie was that when Chris Sarandon is portraying Joseph Kerwin, he has this aging makeup on and and he has a way of speaking in a very slow and intentional way. And uh, he certainly has an uncanny resemblance to Professor Jordan Peterson especially the all-meat diet (laughs) edition of Jordan Peterson, uh, who is looking a little more haggard. You'll probably see some memes on the From Beyond Twitter account that involve the case of Charles Dexter Ward and Jordan Peterson. Yeah, it only makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, so in in the novel, it kind of begins with Charles as a young man, and there's a very lengthy, kind of very literary introduction where he it talks about his his kind of wanderings into the older parts of town in pursuit of his ant- antiquarian interests uh, such as the the old art and architecture that are in these parts of town I think it talks about how the further the further down the hill he goes kind of the older it gets a big aspect of his descent into madness in the novel is kind of how he he slowly starts to shift away from these ordinary interests towards <clears throat> towards more strange things like uh, his occult pursuits. It's not really the most gripping introduction in the novel, but I did find it kind of interesting. Like as I was reading it, I remembered, uh, I I'm not sure where it was, if it was in an introduction to a, a short story collection or what. I remember reading about how the use of uh, non-Euclidean geometry in in Lovecraft, uh, it's, it kind of becomes a symbol of madness and uh 
traditional architecture kind of represents things like order, symmetry, and civilization. So I, I guess he uses it as a way to upset that. And I, I thought it was kind of interesting in this story that Charles is... Uh, his slow departure from being really interested in these antiquarian things like architecture are a sign of him slowly kind of losing his grip. So I, th- I, I don't know, I thought that was kind of an interesting part of it. I understand why this introduction is not in the movie though. It's not especially, <laughs> not especially riveting and I don't think it would make for very good cinema. It definitely is more of something that works in a novel. I agree that this story stands out for um, indulging H.P. Lovecraft's kind of love of New England architecture um, and the whole uh, beginning of the story is basically just Charles Dexter Ward sort of wandering around Providence and sort of describing the buildings and this was an area that H.P. Lovecraft knew very well. In the story the case of Charles Dexter Ward the house where the Wards lived was actually based on a real house um, that H.P. Lovecraft used to walk by all the time. A couple of years ago, I went to Providence and I went to see this house. It's called the Halsey House at 140 Prospect Street. And during H.P. Lovecraft's day, there was uh, stories that it was haunted. So obviously it was a very intriguing house to H.P. Lovecraft and that's why he decided to set this, uh, this story there. One kind of funny thing, today I, uh, I googled the Halsey House and I actually found it's listed on a management and rental real estate site right now. Uh, the ho- you can live in the Ward you House. You can live in the house that Charles Dexter Ward lived in. Leases start at $1,500. Heat and hot water included. That's not so bad. Yeah, so um, it's it's really it's really changed a lot since uh, obviously since the time that H.P. Lovecraft was alive. I'm I'm looking through the uh, the rental ad right now, actually, or I guess the lease ad, and the the whole inside of the house just looks like very modern. Um, in Providence, basically, like the exteriors of all these houses still look pretty much like they would have during H.P. Lovecraft's time if you do a a photograph comparison. But yeah, the inside of them is just looks totally brand new. One one more thing I'll say about kind of the introduction of the story and uh, as it follows Charles around, is it... I don't know. To me, like, it, it actually feels extremely literary like when you're reading this intro it seems like something that could be put next to like a james joyce story and it it would feel very similar there's a literary aspect to it that i feel like is maybe less common in some of his other stuff yeah i mean the the writing is beautiful i've got a little excerpt here that's uh describing the mansion that charles dexter ward lived in so this is a description of the halsey house on 140 Prospect Street during H.P. Lovecraft's lifetime. His home was a great Georgian mansion atop the well-nigh precipitous hill that rises just east of the river, and from the rear windows of its rambling wings, he could look dizzily out over the clustered spires, domes, roofs, and skyscraper summits of the lower town to the purple hills of the countryside beyond. Here he was born, and from the lovely classic porch of the double-bayed brick facade his nurse had first wheeled him in his carriage, etc., etc. Yeah, I mean, it's some really vivid, great description of things that H.P. Lovecraft was 
familiar with and saw every day. And I find it kind of interesting that so many of his stories were inspired by things that were really quite close to him. Um, when I was in Providence walking around, uh, in the course of an afternoon, it was quite easy to walk from the Halsey house um, to the place where H.P. Lovecraft lived uh, at the time he wrote this story to the house that inspired a segment of The Call of Cthulhu. They're all sort of right next to each other. He definitely was drawing on his own experience when he was sort of writing the, the beautiful descriptions that opened the story up. When I was studying James Joyce in university, uh, like reading his Dubliner stories and Ulysses, one, one thing that frequently came up is that he was, he was kind of trying to convey Ireland to, to the world or to, to kind of get, get the essence of Ireland out there. And I feel like H.P. Lovecraft really does do that with, with uh, Providence as well. Let's move on to, I guess, try and get a little more back on the character track here. Charles in the movie. Yeah, so at the start of the movie, uh, the first time you ever see Charles, he's he's introduced as a successful kind of middle-aged man. He's married. This is definitely a departure from the introduction of the, the novel, where he's this promising young kid who's kind of skipping out on college to pursue his o occult interests and slowly goes mad that way. To me, I felt like this loses something pretty important because, I mean, Charles is one of the few Lovecraft characters who's been fairly well-developed. I felt that removing his parents and having him as this middle-aged married man and getting rid of that family relationship kind of removes, again, a pretty important thing in his writing that you don't see in many other stories. In H.P. Lovecraft's story, Charles Dexter Ward's parents are the people who are concerned about what is going on with them. Uh, and so they go to their family doctor and ask him to investigate. In the movie, Charles is married to uh, a woman named Claire. In the film, Claire is the person who's worried about Charles Dexter Ward, and she goes to a private investigator. So the whole, the framing of kind of the mystery of what's going on is different in the movie. And I feel like the reason that they did that in the movie is so that they could have sort of this like romantic tension between Charles' wife, Claire, and the private investigator that she hires. Um, the funny thing is that uh, that whole thing is sort of edited out of the movie and they don't really have a romantic relationship. Um, in the deleted scenes, there were some very awkward scenes that explored Charles' wife and, and, and the private investigator having a, like a love affair, but that doesn't actually end up in the movie. I feel like the reason for the change though from uh, Charles' parents being the ones who are trying to solve this mystery to his wife being the one who's trying to solve this mystery was probably, you know, I, I don't know if it was studio interference or what, but I think there's generally a feeling that uh, you want to have like some sort of romantic relationship or romantic tension. And so I think that change in the movie was to facilitate something like that. I think one reason that the parents were switched to a wife uh, for the movie and to have Charles as this successful adult in the movie. I think part of it is the time change from the early 20th century 
to the end of the 20th century. There's just something less dramatic in 1991 about this guy who does experiments in his parents' basement, which it worked when Lovecraft wrote it. I don't think it would have worked well in 1991 as a movie. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It sort of changes uh, Charles' character. You know, he's almost like a he's like a young aristocrat in the H.P. Lovecraft story. And if you have the modern part set in 1991, you're exactly right. You know, having this young man living in his parents' house doing these experiments uh, really changes the vibe. (laughs) It's like, is, you know, is he like sitting in the basement, like doing World of Warcraft raids in his spare time? (laughs) The cultural uh, implications are certainly somewhat different you know i feel like in the film they never are as successful in establishing uh you know a relationship between charles and his wife as the novel is at establishing a relationship between charles parents and charles you know in the novel it's obvious that his parents care about him uh, you know, and his mom is very afraid of the experiments that Charles is doing in the house. So we sort of see an interaction between Charles and his parents uh, that builds a relationship. And at, of course, at the end, when we know that Charles is dead and gone forever, it is sad. And in the film, there is no relationship really ever built up between Claire and Charles. The first time that we see Claire, she's going Uh, She's walking into the private investigator's office and basically saying, my husband went crazy. (laughs) So there is there's no establishing of a relationship there. But I think I think it still works. It works reasonably well. But I think it works a little better in the novel with the the way that H.P. Lovecraft wrote it. Yeah, the movie still works, but it does really rush into kind of the meat and bones of the story. It kind of skips right to the, I guess, when when most people would be interested. And you can't really blame them for doing that for a movie where the time the time limit is a real factor they need to be considering. But yeah, I think skipping to immediately having her investigating and then... Uh, and then I think there's a flashback. It shows his experiments at home in the garage, and then she's upset about it and kind of forces him to look for a new place to do his experiments, even though she would rather that he just doesn't do them at all. So that's what ends up push it, pushing him to to buy this farm that he, he moves out to. And uh, all, all of the real climax, or maybe not all the climax, but a lot of the big action ends up taking place on that farm. So the novel is split into two parts, um, and one part is uh, present day, or what would have been present day to H.P. Lovecraft when he wrote it in 1927, and the other part takes place in the 1770s, uh, when Joseph Kerwin was alive, and Joseph Kerwin is Charles' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And uh, he was a, a wealthy merchant that was involved in all sorts of trade. And uh, he was also a slaver in the story. Um, And he's sort of this old sorcerer or necromancer. And uh, in the story, there's sort of this worldwide cabal of sorcerer pen pals who write each other. And uh, 
that is something that's sort of lost in the movie. Yeah, I think the movie really does lose a lot of the scale of the novel between this kind of circle of occult or kind of alchemist people and then again all all the cosmic implications of the work that they're trying to do and the things they're trying to accomplish yeah so there's sort of this uh this uh worldwide cabal of sorcerers who are all pen pals and uh they're writing each other about how they can use the essential salts which are basically the remains of people who have died and they are trying to use these distilled remains to resurrect these historical figures and interrogate them and in some cases torture them for answers about things that happened in the past yeah it seems like they're extracting information to kind of further some sinister goal but it, uh, it's never super clear exactly what it is i guess they're trying to achieve either eternal life or to advance beyond the the realm of existence that we're that we can comprehend in addition to writing each other letters this group of sorcerers actually send each other remains that they find of uh famous historical figures uh so they kind of all take a turn resurrecting the same the same people they're all grave robbers so they you know they 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 go around and and try and find the remains of like you know some caesar or some roman general or whatever and then they'll send around his essential salts and all of the sorcerers will resurrect these historical figures and sort of interrogate them yeah i i kind of get i got the feeling that a lot of the a lot of the people that they're resurrecting are dead wizards or sorcerers from the past and they're trying to get kind of like arcane knowledge that's been lost yeah like one of the one of the bodies that is being delivered to joseph Kerwin is a mummy presumably from ancient egypt maybe he was some kind of uh some kind of sorcerer they're certainly trying to learn arcane cosmic secrets yeah so like for Kerwin. <laughs> To me, I felt like he was very well copied from page to screen. He's a great villain. And in a way, he kind of, he takes this story, even though the novel is a mythos novel or a mythos entry with the Augs of Thoth, he kind of brings the story into this ancient wizard attempting to, to achieve eternal life type of a thing. And I guess that's the thing about The Rise of Skywalker I really enjoyed as well, was the wizard attempting to achieve eternal life. <laughs> Damn. Through the body of a younger person. <laughs> yep, we are uh, we are going to talk about the rise of Skywalker in every episode of From Beyond. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, it's uh, it's not my fault it has so many similarities. Uh, honestly, I think that's that is a, kind of an interesting thing you point out that the, there is sort of a an archetype of this wizard who wants to live forever and is bo- and is body jumping, which mm-hmm. is obviously what this story is about. And you know, in the Rise of Skywalker, they confirm that you know all the Sith since the beginning of the Rule of Two have sort of been jumping from one body to another and that Palpatine is like the final incarnation. He has all the Sith inside of him. And man, that is really similar to uh, what Joseph Kerwin is trying to do by, of course, jumping into his younger relative. And of course, in The Rise of Skywalker, Palpatine is trying to jump into his younger relative, which is Rey. Yeah, well, this novel reminded me a lot of another Lovecraft story, The Thing on the Doorstep. Yep. Because again, it's about a wizard who they believe he's dead, 
but he's actually he's basically done an essence transfer into his daughter and he the story is about him trying to steal the body of his daughter's husband well i was looking up the thing on the doorstep while talking about this since it is so similar and it's been a very long time since i've read that story i was reading that there were several stories uh, that Lovecraft was kind of influenced by that kind of covered very similar things of a person trying to steal the body of a younger person or of a of a relative or whatever. So I guess it's it's an archetype or it's a type of story that's been told for even before he started doing it. The Shadow Out of Time is another good example of this. Um, in The Shadow Out of Time, this guy starts acting weird. His family notices that he's acting weird. Um, and an alien from the past has actually switched places with him like a freaky Friday kind of thing. So this alien explores the earth in the, in the body of the protagonist for like a couple years. And while that happens, the protagonist is actually stuck back in time, uh, in the, the body of this crazy alien. So yeah, these, a lot of these HP Lovecraft stories definitely play with this like identity thing. Like what if somebody else was trying to use your body, possess you, take control of your mind? It's a it's a reoccurring motif for sure. Yeah, might have been a fear of his. <laughs> so back to, I guess, the topic of Kerwin really quick before we move on. One detail I really liked about Kerwin is that it's mentioned that he, fl- he fled from Salem to Providence during the Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess due to the nature of the experiments he was doing, he, I guess, felt a- afraid that he would get wrapped up in that. I thought that was a really cool little piece of history. And there's actually a few other, a few other interesting kind of historical bits in the, in the novel that never really see, they never really happen in the movie or get mentioned in the movie. Yeah, and I think something that H.P. Lovecraft liked to do with his writing was to mix in real historical events and to kind of confuse you as to whether what he was talking about was real or not. A good example of that is the Necronomicon. A lot of times he'll talk about these old books that actually exist, and then he'll throw in a couple names of, of, of books that he made up, but because he's sort of mixed it in with these real things you're not sure and uh, i think he you know he's trying to do the same thing in this story by talking about real historical events like the salem witch trials the next character we're going to talk about is dr willett in the novel and john march in the film in the novel charles parents are concerned about the change that has come over his personality they're concerned about the crazy experiments that he's doing and so they contact the family doctor dr willett to investigate and in the film charles wife claire goes to the private investigator john march and asks him to investigate so uh in both versions of the story the character tasked with investigating the strange behavior of charles dexter ward in both the novel and the movie dr willett and and john march kind of end up being the the character that we experience a lot of it through they're kind of like the narrator for us i think it did make sense to to change dr willett into a private investigator just to update it to the modern setting because it's really difficult to imagine a doctor in the 90s going through the lengths that Dr. Willett went through for the, the Ward family. Yeah, I agree. The uh, The duties of a family doctor to uh, 
the family they're attending has certainly changed since H.P. Lovecraft was alive. And I think it would have been very strange to have a family doctor kind of doing all that action hero stuff that, that he does in the story. <laughs> Although maybe it was strange for a family doctor to be doing that back then. Uh, I, it probably was. <laughs> I certainly don't think that family doctors were making habits out of uh, going deep into ancient catacombs and confronting unnameable horrors on behalf of their patients. Yeah, times They're have changed. Very different times. <laughs> you can't get the same kind of medical service anymore. If, uh, if Dr. Willett was alive today, the coronavirus would not stand a chance. He would have shot it in the face. <laughs> There's a little bit of a literary mystery in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, and that is who is subject number 118? And people have tried to figure this out since the story was released. So uh, this isn't really something that happens in The Resurrected. In the film, uh, this, this plot point has sort of been excised. But in the story, uh, Kerwin and his necromancer pen pals talk about this really powerful historic historical figure that they have the remains of and they want to resurrect and one of Kerwin's necromancer friends writes to him when he sends the remains and says do not call up anything that you cannot put down and advises uh, Kerwin to take extra care with this particular specimen. Now, at the end of the story, Dr. Willett is down in Joseph Kerwin's catacombs and he resurrects subject number 118 and then passes out. And we never hear exactly what it is that or who it is that subject number 118 was. What we do know is that he's a historical figure and from the the passages where he's mentioned it is assumed that the reader would know who this is um, so this was an unpublished story so it's possible that hp lovecraft meant to leave this a mystery or it's possible that he just never got around to writing down who he thought subject number 118 was but ultimately subject number 118 is resurrected by dr willett when dr willett wakes up Whoever this person was leaves Dr. Willett a note about how he can kill the resurrected Joseph Kerwin. And later, Dr. Willett hears that all the other necromancers who are still alive have been killed, presumably by subject number 118. So the literary mystery is, who is subject number 118? There's a, there's a couple thoughts on this, um, but Keith, I, I wanted to hear what you, what, what are your guesses? Um, I mean, the, the first thing that came to mind was the author of the Necronomicon, but I quickly changed my, changed my thought on that. So I, I think that my best guess is that subject 118 may have, may have been the antagonist from the thing on the doorstep. The antagonist of that story's name is Ephraim Waite. He's the supposedly deceased father of uh, one of the main character's wife, and it's eventually revealed that he has taken over her body, possibly after death, and the climax of the story is that he, after some weird things happen, he transfers himself into this guy's body, kind of the, the husband of his daughter. So for me, um, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, it seems that most of the people Kerwin is bringing back to life are old dead magicians and occultists, uh, and Ephraim is described 
in the thing on the doorstep as a prodigious magical student in his day. So, yeah, maybe he's trying to find this guy who kind of perfected an art that he's he's attempting to, to learn. Wow, that is, uh, that is an interesting guess. I haven't seen anybody else make that guess. Lovecraft certainly liked to tie his stories together and make little references. You know, for example, in uh, in this story, um, the Tillinghast family is mentioned. Ezra Whedon's uh, wife is uh, a Tillinghast. And of course, in the story from beyond, the main character is a Tillinghast. So, yeah, I mean, that sounds plausible. I think, uh, you know, maybe he was trying to connect those those stories. I haven't heard anyone make that guess before. That's interesting. I think the text certainly seems to imply that this character, this subject 118, is something somebody that the reader would know from history, some sort of famous historical figure, although maybe it was just a famous figure within the Lovecraft mythos, uh, as, as, as you were mentioning, famous for, uh, for their mastery of the arcane arts. Uh, a popular guess for who Subject 118 is, is actually Merlin, you know, one of the most well-known, powerful magicians of uh, legend and his traditional moral alignment certainly doesn't make it seem like he would look very kindly on sorcerers and necromancers of the sort that Joseph Kerwin was and uh, his whole circle of friends. Oh, I thought that that was sort of a cool a cool idea. Lovecraft certainly liked to tie his um, his stories into other strains of mythology and history. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to tell you my initial thought about this reading the story, which is quite silly. My initial thought was was that uh, maybe it was Jesus. <laughs> I don't know why that's where my mind went, but that's kind of a funny thought. <laughs> don't bring him back again. <laughs> Uh, this is actually what Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ 2 is going to be about. Je- yeah, I think so. Jesus, ca- I think, uh... Jesus getting resurrected by a, a necromancer and coming back to, to whoop some necromancer ass. I guess the question that we're asking is, is Jesus Christ part of the Lovecraft universe? Is Jesus Christ an elder entity? Evidence suggests maybe. There's a lot of like ancient alien alien theorists who like to talk about these ideas that maybe like famous people in history were aliens or whatever, and that they were actually doing miracles, but it was like advanced science. A lot of those, uh, yeah. a lot of those, those ancient alien ideas are sort of literally garbled versions of Lovecraft, like uh, some of the occult figures who came up with the, these ideas are known to have been influenced by Lovecraft. So, I mean, in a way, these ideas are kind of Lovecraftian. And, uh, you know, I could I could kind of see Jesus being an elder god. I think that would be cool. Yeah, so a last uh, sidetracked but interesting point is that in an early, in an early draft of Prometheus, it was flat out going to say that Jesus Christ was one of the engineers that created life on Earth. <laughs> I know. Crazy. <laughs> Uh, it was yeah, it was terrible. I'm, I'm glad that never happened. Yeah, that's absolutely bonkers. Let's shift our topic over, shift our focus over to uh, the special effects in this movie. A, a lot of the effects in this movie are pretty awesome. Some of them are a bit funny looking, but uh, 
for for an early 90s horror movie they're they're as good as you could hope for how did you feel about them yeah i was really surprised by the production value in this movie to be honest um the special effects remind me of something like hellraiser uh with both the gore and sort of the uh, the animation style where they're drawing directly on the cells of the film um for some of the effects there's some really good practical creature effects in this movie at one point in the flashback portion in the when they're depicting the raid on Kerwin's farm they show that there's all these bodies following the raid deformed bodies that are sort of coming out of Kerwin's catacombs and washing down the river and uh, there's this one malformed creature that's come up from imperfect salts as they say in the story and uh, he looks really horrifying in the uh, in the movie. He sort of looks like a baby with like ribs coming out of him. And uh, yeah, he looks he looks gross. He's a really cool uh, puppet character. Um, in the behind the scenes on the Blu-ray, they talk about how all these body parts that they send down the river they sort of built out of you know real flesh that they got from like a butcher shop or whatever. And uh, they tried to collect all of them, uh, of course, get them out of the water after they shot the scene, but some of them escaped. And I guess this led to uh, some kids who were going fishing later uh, calling the police after they fished like a, this like fake torso made out of meat into their boat. And they thought they had just discovered like a piece of a murder victim or something. Uh, so that should be a good indication of how good the, the practical effects are. They're very well done. One of the most memorable sequences in the film is straight out of Lovecraft story. And that is when the protagonists venture into the catacombs of Joseph Kerwin and uh, they find some of the monstrosities that he is imperfectly resurrected, stuck in pits in pitch black darkness. This part of the movie has some pretty cool special effects that really reminded me of the thing, sort of like claymation style monsters. It looks a little Ray Harryhausen, but it's pretty cool. The, the monster design is definitely horrific and the lighting in the scene is very dramatic. A lot of it is in pitch black darkness and I think they did a good job of translating one of the scariest monsters in Lovecraft story, one of the scariest sequences in a Lovecraft story into something that really worked on the screen. They, they're, they're kind of smart about how much they show of them as well. Like in that scene, I think they have a lantern with them when they're exploring these catacombs and it gets dropped and, and goes out as they see this monster. So in the scene, you kind of, you have it occasionally lit up by the muzzle fire of their gunshots as it's approaching them. It's a good way to not show too much of this thing and also it definitely amps up the drama. At the very end of the movie, in the confrontation between John March and Kerwin, there's a really cool stop-motion sequence where, when John March summons the skeletal remains, or this uh, this powerful wizard who's maybe the subject 118 that we talked about earlier in the in the conversation. Yeah, very very cool stop-motion sequence. Probably kind of goofy to present-day moviegoers, but, I mean, I personally really love those scenes and those effect shots in movies. All right, moving on to our final thoughts. Uh, how did this film live up to our expectations and predictions going in? Yeah, I mean, as, as I'm, I'm sure you've gathered from listening to this episode, we both 
really like this movie. I think it is one of the best Lovecraft adaptations. And uh, I think because this story contains a lot of content that is more filmable than other Lovecraft stories, you know, they do a really good job with it. For example, the catacomb sequence at the end. We also get some of the most fleshed out characters in a Lovecraft story. And uh, they do a really good job with uh, Charles Dexter Ward and Joseph Kerwin in this film. You know, some things have been kind of Hollywoodized a little bit. You know, for example, the, uh, you know, changing of Charles' parents to his wife Claire in the film uh, and the addition of sort of a love triangle that's going on there. But, you know, for the most part, I think this is an adaptation that is true to the spirit of Lovecraft. Relatively high production value for the kind of movie it is. You know, if you're watching like Hellraiser and then you watch this movie, you know, very similar vibe, similar level of, yeah, similar level of quality. Uh, it's a great H.P. Lovecraft movie. Anybody who likes this stuff should watch it. And, you know, maybe I'll revise uh, my ranking as we go through these movies. I think we're going to do Dagon next month. But uh, I think The Resurrected is probably my favorite H.P. Lovecraft adaptation. I think it's the best one. Yeah, I, I don't really know if I have like a, a number one. Uh, it's, it's pretty tough to rank a number one Lovecraft movie. This one is is absolutely up there. I th I think Dagon is probably consistently one of my favorites. Maybe it still is. We'll see when we get to that episode. Uh, but for this one, yeah, I mean, I again, I I watched it quite a while before reading it. When I did get around to reading it, there were little things that disappointed me. But for the most part, you can tell why they're not in the movie. A lot of it doesn't translate perfectly well from page to screen. But I think I agree with you that this one is probably one of the most well-suited Lovecraft pieces to turn into a movie. Check it out if you haven't. And also, if you haven't, then it's ruined. You already know what happens. You know, there's actually a study uh, where they gave people spoilers for a, a story in the experimental group and in the control group. They just read the story blind. And the people who got the spoilers actually reported enjoying the story more. So, who knows? Science suggests that perhaps, well, psychology, it might be a, a little optimistic to call it science, but there is some evidence that spoilers actually enhance your enjoyment of a story. So, of course, we, we recommend that you, you read the stories and watch the movies that we're talking about, but if you haven't, your enjoyment of them will not be depleted by having listened to our podcast. No, I, I think having a familiarity with something that you're going into definitely helps. I mean, it's made me like a lot of Lovecraftian movies that are not good. <laughs> if I hear somebody say a movie is Lovecraftian, to me, that basically spoils the ending of it. Like, I'm like, okay, I know where this story is going and what the final reveal is going to be. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you know, I, I never would have read those stories if I hadn't or, you know, read the stories or watched the movie or whatever uh, if someone hadn't told me it was Lovecraftian. So, I mean, it would be yeah. cool to read or watch something that just turned out to be Lovecraftian out of the blue. Because uh, I feel like that's, you know, the way that cosmic horror is most effective. But that doesn't happen too often. So I think I go into most Lovecraftian stories or cosmic horror stories somewhat spoiled as to 
what the final twist is going to be. And I think any good story, the journey of experiencing it is much more important than the final destination or the plot points along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to the second episode of From Beyond. Join us again next month where we are going to talk about one more Lovecraft adaptation before we move on to uh, more general cosmic horror films. We're going to talk about Dagon, which is potentially the other best adaptation of a Lovecraft story. It's an adaptation of Shadow Over Innsmouth. So go read Shadow Over Innsmouth, watch Dagon, and we will be back at the end of next month to talk about that movie. That's right. Do your homework. From Beyond is written by Mike Contos and Keith Warholic. Theme music by Mike Contos. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FromBeyondPod. And our email address is FromBeyondPod at gmail.com. We love to hear from our listeners, so feel free to send us questions, comments, and suggestions. If you'd like to help our podcast out, we'd appreciate a positive review on iTunes so that our podcast stays visible to people looking to find Lovecraft content. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.